Welcome to Living a Better Life podcast with your host, Madeline Golick. This is a weekly podcast exploring a variety of topics on how you can live a better life, not just physically, but in all aspects of what it means to be human living in a modern world. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not replace professional or medical advice. This podcast is sponsored by Ecophysiotherapy, where their mission is to educate, empower, and rehabilitate you back to health. Without further ado, please enjoy the show. Welcome everybody back to this episode or back to the podcast. On today's episode, we're going to be exploring EMDR, which stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. Lots of big words, and we're totally going to dive into what they all mean. My guest today is Sara Povey. Welcome to the show. Hi, Madeline. I'm glad to be here. So I always want to start off first and foremost with tell us a little bit about you to build some context for, you know, the conversation we're going to have today. Yeah. So I'm Sara Povey. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, and I practice in the state of California, I am the director, uh, clinical director and co-founder of Empower Therapy and Coaching, which is a mental health studio. Um, We're in Long Beach, but right now we're offering virtual um, therapy and coaching to people all over the place. Uh, We also offer a ton of groups. Um, I primarily work with women and couples and I do a lot of trauma work. I do EMDR um, as like my primary orientation. Um, and I lead a group for um, sober, curious women, a women's group. Um, yeah, so that's a little bit about my background. Excellent, great. So obviously, uh, a, a diverse uh, amount of offerings and different ways of, um, you know, ac- people that people can access um, this type of service. So, um, and since you mentioned that you're one of your primary, like one of the tools that you like to use is EMDR. So I figured, like, who better than to talk to somebody who likes to use this technique? Um, so maybe we can start off with what got you into wanting to do EMDR and is there like special training that you need to do for this before we get into like what it is and what it looks like? Yes, that's a great question. So uh, I learned, I learned about EMDR from my supervisor when I was working at a treatment center. Um, I work from a body oriented perspective, meaning that I, I work with my body, spirit and shadow. Um, so I was already doing some body-based therapy DR was. I researched more into it and found this amazing program called uh, the Institute of Creative Mindfulness. And uh, that's where I did my training. It's two long weekends. Um, you have to do, it's like, I think three days each. Um, a lot of training, a lot of neuroscience a lot of practicing with your fellow therapists. It's always like, it's always fascinating when you go to these conventions because you go to learn and you go to, to, to learn the technique, but you also are expected to participate. And so you're processing your own trauma and you're just, you really like bond and connect with this group of people. And by the end of it, everyone knows each other and knows their whole kind of life, life history. Um, and then after the, after you do the two trainings, you have to do a certain amount of hours, 
um, and get consultation. So you're working with clients and then getting feedback and suggestion um, and support from someone that's been doing it a while. Um, I've been doing it for about two years now. And I really just, I, I wanted to do EMDR because I, I was bumping up against a limitation in my talk therapy. There were people that I was working with that I couldn't get past a certain point because their trauma was um, stored in their brain. And there was no amount of talking about it that would move it around. It needed a different kind of approach. And when I, when I realized it, the EMDR actually moved memories from one part of the brain to another, I was like, yes, sign me up. Okay. Amazing. Yeah. I, I mean, I, uh, I had met a psychologist here in Canada that mentioned that um, she did it and we didn't dive too deeply. Like she kind of briefly just gave me a kind of history and then I forgot about it because we, we lost contact. And then I was reading um, The Body Keeps the Score yes. by Bessel van der Klok. And so one of his chapters was about EMDR. Um, and I just was like, man, this is so, because I like, I'm like a neuroscience geek. I like that's, you know, when, when I'm not reading like stuff related to my profession, I'm reading a lot of neuroscience and psychotherapy and psychology stuff. I don't know. That's apparently where my brain wants to go. Um, so, so this is why I'm like, okay, now I really kind of want to try to understand this just also from like a practical side, like, what does that look like? So we know, so EMDR, Eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Gosh, they had to make it so long, eh? It's a mouthful. What is it? So, EMDR is um, a whole mouthful of words, and it, it's basically a psychotherapy that enables people to heal from the symptoms and emotional distress that result from disturbing life experiences. So, um, we call it a trauma therapy, but trauma really is any. Uh, any event that happens that changes your relationship with yourself and with the world and creates kind of this reaction neurologically in our brains. Um, there's repeated studies show that um, using EMDR, people can experience the benefits of psychotherapy that once took years to make a difference and they can, they can start to, to heal and change their brain in just a couple sessions. It's widely assumed that severe emotional pain requires a long time to heal. When you think about, you know, people with complex trauma and getting like years and years and years of therapy in order to finally like be okay and repair. The EMDR um, shows that the mind can actually heal from trauma as quick as the body recovers from physical trauma. And there's some really cool statistics that I wanted to share. So more than 30 positive controlled outcome studies have been done on the MDR. Some of the studies show that 84% to 90% of single trauma victims, so people that have been through one single traumatic event, no longer have post-traumatic stress disorder after only three 90-minute sessions. That's 84 to 90%. Um, wow. Diagnosed with PTSD after three 90-minute sessions. Another study founded by, or funded by the HMO Kaiser uh, found that 100% of the single trauma victims and 77% of multiple trauma victims no longer were diagnosed with PTSD after only six 50-minute sessions. And then there's another study that says 77% of combat veterans were free of PTSD in 12 sessions. So 
you know, something I really love about EMDR is, you know, as a therapist, you're really working yourself out of a job because people can expect to be in an EMDR for about six to 12 sessions um, and be okay. You know, more complex PTSD may require, you know, up to a year, um, but that's relatively short term for people with, you know, this paralyzing uh, traumatic stress disorder. Uh, there's been a ton of research on EMDR and it's widely recognized um, as an effective form of treatment for trauma. And it's been also recognized by the American Psychiatric Association, the World Health Organization, the Department of Defense. Uh, it's used a lot at the VA with veterans um, coming back from, from wars and combat with PTSD. Um, and it's just, it's a really, um, effective psychotherapy. And, you know, if I heard my therapist 10 years say that moving her fingers in front of my face, which we'll get to in a minute, would heal trauma, I would probably laugh out loud. It sounds wild, but it's not woo-woo. And it's actually grounded in a lot of science. Um, and so do you want me to tell you a little bit about kind of like the, the how it, it works? Like, Definitely. Because people are like, OK, that sounds great. And and all right, there's some studies, you know, there's like I said, I mean, uh, you know, there's there's I've I've seen the readings about it. I know that Veterans Affairs, you know, it's one of the many different techniques that they use, um, you know, to help with all kinds of is issues coming back from from war. So I'm sure people are like, OK, so what's the rapid eye thing and what's What's the reprocessing? What does that even look like in clinic? Like, what is it that you do yeah. that's so like amazing? Practical. Practical. <laughs> yes. Like, practical. like I'm a patient. I'm coming into your clinic. You're like, we're going to do EMDR. And, and the client just kind of glosses over and goes, huh? <laughs> you know, explain it to me. Like, you, you know, explain it to the listeners as if you were explaining it to a client who has like no neuroscience, like no you yes. know, and then like ex sort of explaining as you would for like verbal consent, like what is it that you're going to do before yeah. you do it? I love that question. So I like to compare um, what our body does during trauma to how our body responds um, when we're wounded. So let's, for example, say you cut your hand, your body works to close the wound, right? You scab over, your blood thickens, you know, you start to heal. So if a foreign object or repeated injury irritates the wound, it festers and it causes pain. So if you've got this open wound and it's getting all kinds of dirt in it, it's, it's not going to heal. It's going to get irritated and, and probably get worse. So once the block is removed, healing resumes. Like if we clean out the wound, we put some alcohol on it, we cover it, we protect it, then healing can happen. EMDR basically demonstrates that the similar sequence of events happens with our minds. So the brain, the brain's information processing system naturally moves towards mental health. Our psyches are constantly moving towards healing. If the system is blocked or imbalanced by the impact of a disturbing event, the emotional wound festers and can cause really intense suffering. And then once the block is removed, healing resumes. So using detailed protocols and procedures, um, we work to help you, the client, 
to activate their natural healing processes, that we all have these natural ways and, uh, you know, adaptive ways that we, we work to heal ourselves. You know, we, we, we have these in us. And oftentimes trauma is actually the way that we've survived an event. Like our body, the way that body responds to trauma is it protects us, it gets us out of danger. When you think of fight, flight, freeze, fawn, you think of these like very brilliant strategies that are helping us outrun the tiger, fight the tiger, play dead, right? Or like make friends with the tiger. That The fawn response doesn't really make sense in the tiger metaphor, but you see what I'm saying? Like all of our trauma responses are aimed at helping us to survive. And so we have to honor that it's a very adaptive process um, and that we, you know, we can honor and, and have gratitude for the, this part of us that, that needed to respond um, in order to survive. So EMDR is an eight-phase treatment. And a lot of people think it's just fine movements, but there's a lot of work that goes into um, preparing you, to- oh, Sorry, I was gonna say, can you repeat that? Because the, the Zoom kind of started doing its transformer, blah, 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 and I missed the, I, I caught the eight phase. Yes, okay. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Can you hear me okay now? I, I can if if I if I wave at you, that means turn your video off. And this is this is yes. pandemic life recording. So you know yes. we where we work with uh, Zoom yes. the best way we can do it. So if I start waving, it means turn your video off. Okay. I'll keep a lookout. <laughs> okay, so yeah, EMDR is an eight phase treatment, and um, a lot of people think EMDR is just the eye movement when it's actually, it involves a lot more preparation before we even get to the part where we're activating trauma. So um, after, after some preparation, after some um, mindfulness, after doing a lot of things in order to, to help ground you and, and find your resources, uh, basically what EMDR does is it helps you identify the memories that you wanna target. And then you hold that memory with the different aspects of the event. So the, um, the sensations in the body, the, the negative belief you have about yourself, like shame is a response to trauma. And so almost always there's like a negative belief that you have about yourself as it relates to that event. Um, and then the emotions and, you know, we hold all of that together and we'll like, we'll, um, use stimulation of some kind. So it really depends on the preference of the client. I've had, everybody has just different preferences. So some people prefer the eye movement. So watching, you know, your clinician's fingers or a light um, travel back and forth. Um, and that, what that does is it moves your, moves your brain, it moves your eyes and stimulates both sides of the body. And it's the same kind of mechanism that we do in REM sleep, right? When, if you, if you were to like open your eyelids, when someone's in REM sleep, their eyes would be going back and forth really, really quickly. And it's because we're processing, you know, memories and disturbing feelings. And just like, that's how we, how we get that restful sleep. And though it doesn't look very restful at all. Um, so when we stimulate both sides of the body, it can be through eye movement, it can be through 
um, different tones um, dinging back and forth in headphones. It can be holding vibrating pulsers. Uh, what that does is it actually moves the memory, which is stored in the, the limbic system, the back part of the brain. Uh, it moves it to the prefrontal cortex. And so in order to kind of understand why that's helpful, it can be um, good to have an example. So let's, let's say that we're working with a veteran, right? And, um, you know, they're walking down the street, they hear a car misfire, they get really triggered. And all of a sudden in that triggered place, they have no sense of time. They have no sense of space. They have no concept that it's Monday at four o'clock and I'm sitting, and I'm walking down the street. They are, they have like time traveled back to where they were when the trauma first happened. It's the same body sensations, same emotions, same, you know, belief about themselves and they're completely hijacked, right? That is what triggers are, it's time traveling. And, and, you know, when you're truly activated and when you have PTSD, these triggers can just like dislodge you completely from, you know, your reality. And it can be terrifying. It can almost be like a dissociative state. Um, so when that happens, when we have a traumatic event and it happened to us and it gets stored in the wrong part of the brain, like, I like to imagine that there's like a little secretary in our brain that just like is putting files in different, you know, file cabinets. And, you know, when something really traumatic happened, it got put in the wrong cabinet, got put back here where, where we put, put in our back brain, where our survival response lives, where our instinct lives, where, you know, the, the main goal is to seek pleasure, avoid pain. And so um, if we look at trauma as like a misstorage, you know, it's, you know, file that's put in the wrong room, EMDR is helping that file go to the right room. So that when you're walking down the street and a car misfires, you are, you are able to say like, oh, that was startling, but you know, it's Monday at four o'clock and I'm walking down the street and I'm in California. I'm not like, time travel back to this place and it's not as charged. I have a positive belief about myself that comes up instead of the negative belief. And anytime this happens in the future, I'm going to respond very differently because I have successfully reprocessed the memory um, that has been so, that has really been like these traumatic memories can really ruin your life. And having freedom from that can be so helpful and so healing and come with so much relief. And there is a physiological response. That's, that's the other part of it, right? Because if you are that veteran and you're transported back to the place where you heard that, you know, bomb go off or whatever, the gunshots, the fires, right? Your response for survival at that particular time is going to be very much centered around fighter fight or flight survival <laughs> and the thing is is that you're like your physiology is likely to respond in the exact same way to that sound and you're saying like the the you know the it's okay to be startled right under normal circumstances our physiology goes into that fight or flight response and then within a minute or two usually we all come back like my husband yesterday you know came 
you know, walking upstairs and I didn't hear. And then he just kind of appeared because he's saying goodnight to my daughter. And of course, I'm startled because I don't expect him to be there. But because I don't have that trauma experience, I I go relatively back into a normal physiological state. My heart rate goes up for a second. I realize, hey, I'm safe. Everything's fine and everything's neutral. But what, you know, what for a veteran, for example, that's that's not going to be the experience they're having. They're literally thinking they're in this place. They don't. And right. So then to the regular people, if they're having a response or something, we're going to think something's off here. Mm -hmm. But that's because they don't. Right. They're not aware and their physiology is not coming down. Yeah. Yeah. And you you can't stay in that physiological state over and over and over and over again without developing other, you know, health related issues. Yeah. And I mean, we see this all the time, you know, not just with veterans, but anyone with trauma, it's exhausting to live in that kind of state of hypervigilance constantly. Um, If you think about, you know, just like that startled feeling, if that lasted for years on end would be, it fries your nervous system. And that's why we see a spike in, you know, substance abuse. That's why we see, you know, people's entire lives being changed. You know, the relationships, people can't be around them. Like it's, it affects every aspect of their lives. I had heard, and I can't remember if this is when I was talking with my psychologist or if it was Bessel that was saying it. I can't remember. So I can't quite, I can't quite, uh, you know, give credit to whomever, but um, my understanding uh, regarding this particular technique is that um, it allows people to go into their traumas without reliving the trauma. Whereas in talk therapy for some people, and I think this is in Bessel's um, book, you know, he talked about like the talk therapy wasn't working. It was ha- most of the time re-traumatizing them because you're asking them to go back and talk about it. Um, and so from my understanding, EMDR is a way to kind of go back into there, but without being re-traumatized. Why is that? Oh, I'm so glad that you said that because- a good trauma therapist will not be obsessed with you, like telling you your story and knowing every detail about your story. Um, that can actually be really triggering and very re-traumatizing, right? Cause you're, you're basically flooding your body with the same kind of adrenaline and cortisol that you stress hormones um, that you were using or that, that were kind of pulsing through your body when you were traumatized. And so, um, and this is something that's really cool about EMDR is that, you know, there's in our, usually our like second or third session, we go through and we do what we call target farming, where we, we say like, okay, tell me some different themes in your life. Then tell me like the negative belief that goes along with the theme. Um, you got the theme of um, abandonment, right? <laughs> Yeah. So you got this theme of abandonment and the negative belief is I'm not lovable, right? It's like that negative belief that you have about yourself. Then I would have, you know, you float back to, you know, the first time that you felt abandonment or the first time you thought you felt that negative belief, I'm not lovable. And then you think of the most recent time that you felt like you weren't lovable and the worst time. 
And we go through this process with about three different themes, three different negative beliefs. And that really gets us into a network. And if you've ever seen the movie Inside Out, I always love that kind of like that scene of like the memories in those little balls, you know, you can see them and watch the memory play out inside. And, and you know, something that, that happens once you start EMDR is you start kind of remembering things. Um, and it's not, not necessarily all bad things. You'll just remember like, you know, like I'm wearing these plaid pants right now and I feel like they're like the same pattern that I had like a dress when I was like a little kid. Um, there's just like these, these memories that come up when we start to access the memory network. Um, and then, Madeline, are you there? Oh, I'm still there. I just turned my video off because I'm still, okay. I'm still getting a little feedback. So whatever, or not feedback, the, the, you know, the Zoom, I, I think I'm going to let you speak, but I'm going to muffle it. So um, if you want to turn your video off too, that's fine. We'll just, we're going to, yeah. this, we're, I'm, we're just going to talk freely but without looking at each other, which is okay. I'll, I'll get a good sense of when to jump in. Um, sure. So I just want to kind of recap what, what you just said before we, we kind of um, move forward just to make sure that I've gotten it all. Um, so what you're saying is like prior to starting the session, part of the sort of prep work um, is, is looking for these common th or looking for some themes with some um, negative beliefs that you have. And then, looking or asking the person to sort of think about different times in their life where they've sort of experienced those negative beliefs or experienced those, those themes. Am I, am I following that correctly? Yes, you are. Yes. Okay. So, you know, that's, that's just part of, that's part of the preparation work. And that gets us thinking about the things that you want to process once we go there um, and then once we get to the part where we're, we're processing, which, which means we're going in, we're activating a specific trauma and we're, you know, we're going in there. Like we are purposely activating the trauma. Um, you as a client do not need to help me as the therapist to understand what's happening for you. Um, so you don't need your therapist to understand. You don't have to tell the story again. You basically just have to kind of check in every now and again with what you're noticing in your body. Um, and it can be helpful to kind of talk out loud about what's happening during the, the bilateral stimulation, which is the eye movement or, you know, any, any practice of um, stimulating both sides of the body. Does that make sense? Yeah. So again, I'm, I'm going to resummarize to, to make sure that I'm so so basically, once you've established these uh, sort of themes and these negative beliefs, you might take one of them. Yes. And so the clients, let's just say, sitting in, in, in the office or sitting in their space. And are you asking them at that point to just think about a particular time or a different, a series of different times that they've experienced it? So they're thinking about that, but don't have to verbalize it while they're either being stimulated by sound, um, the pulses or the moving the eyes back and forth. So are like, are they thinking about that while it's happening, but just not verbalizing it? Maybe that's the part I'm missing. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you're clarifying that. So if you're kind of sitting in front of me, I'll say, I, you know, 
what, what target would you like to work on today? Say you want to work on the target of abandonment. Okay. What image represents the worst part of that target? Um, my mom leaving me and my brother, right? So you're, you're, you've identified the specific image. Okay. Then I would ask, what is, what is the negative belief that you have about yourself when you think about that image? And they'll, they'll say, I'm not lovable or something like a negative belief. And I have a list of common negative beliefs. Um, it's called the greatest hits, greatest hits of negative beliefs. And um, so they'll, they'll pick one from the list or come up with their own. And then I'll ask them, um, when you look back on that original image, your mom leaving your brother, what would you like to believe about yourself now? And then that would be an opportunity for them to choose a positive belief that they would like to have. So maybe that positive belief is I am lovable. Then we start the reprocessing part. So I'll ask them to think about the image and the belief along with the emotions and the body sensations and hold that all together and just notice what they're noticing. And then I'll start stimulation, whether it's sound, whether it's tapping, whether it's following a light across the screen, uh, a screen, which we do with virtual EMDR um, or a light bar, which some therapists have that in their office where they follow a light moving from one side of a bar to the other. And then, you know, periodically I'll say, so when, when they do this kind of bilateral stimulation, um, we'll do it for 24 to 36 times uh, back and forth, which gives the, the brain a chance to kind of start to move the memory or, you know, somebody at my training compared EMDR to like a, a, a plunger for your brain. <laughs> And it's like un, un, stuck, unsticking all that stuff that's stuck in your brain. And so once, once they're, you know, 24 to 36 back and forth bilateral taps or sounds, I will check in with them again saying, what are you noticing now? And they'll say, I'm feeling really sad and alone. And then I'll say, go with that. And they'll go with that. And we'll do another 36 passes back and forth. And we'll do that over and over and over until they feel little to no distress at all when they think about that original image. Um, and then I'll ask them, you know, to, to notice what's coming up in their body until they have a clear scan, a clear body scan where their body's not feeling charged anymore. Um, sometimes we'll have to go back and, and keep processing until it's all the way out. Um, but, but it really is that process of like cleaning out a wound. You know, we're going back in and in and in until it no longer, it no longer um, has a charge. It's no longer distressing. And that positive belief that they chose at the very beginning um, now feels very true. It feels, you know, I, I use um, like a Likert scale. So on a scale from one to seven, how true does this feel with one being not true at all to seven being very true? 
And so, you know, ideally at the end of a session, we get to a place where, um, you know, they have no distress and they think of the original image. They have a positive belief and they have a clear body scan and they're not noticing any kind of physical um, symptoms of distress. Okay. And, and it's not that, you know, it takes away the memory of the event. It sounds, what it sounds like is that it takes away or it re it doesn't, I guess it like changes the way that the body responds, right? Because really what we're saying is that the body is responding to the event as if it's occurring literally as it occurred the first time that it occurred. Yeah. Yeah. And if, you know, if you've, if you've never, if you've ever been through, you know, trauma before, um, it's weird because you know, rationally that it's not happening anymore. You're safe. You're okay. You know, you're surrounded by cars, like nobody's going to hurt you, but there's this other part that's in charge. That's running the show that is saying, duck and cover, hide, you know, disappear, fight back. Like it is, it's the part of our brain that has no kind of, um, no no connection to rational thought. And that's, you know, that's important to mention as well. When we are in in a traumatic um, stress episode, when we are triggered, we actually lose all blood flow to the prefrontal cortex, which is the part of our brain that is responsible for rational and logical thinking. It's the part of us that makes decisions and, um, you know, has willpower and is has memory recall. Um, so it's, we literally don't have blood flow to the part of our brain that can help us figure out and resource our way out of that, like full blown body response to trauma. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, and, and sometimes I'll talk about, you know, the amygdala, which is part of, you know, the the uh, limbic system that it also stores things not in memory, the way that we think about memory, but stores um, our senses attributed to that. Like I, sometimes I'll say some, sometimes an example that I think about is like if somebody got into a car accident and the car that hit them was red that person may be having a physiological response every time they see a red car, which you know is obviously not hitting you right now, right? But your physiology, right? Like the actual bodily sensations, the way that your body is tensing or, you know, you might feel an increase in in pain. So I usually talk about it in the context of pain um, as a physiotherapist, right? So, So, you know, your body may be experiencing pain, a pain sensation, um, because the physiology is being fired that way, but there's really nothing that is in some cases, particularly causing that pain to be there. Like it's not because something is being damaged, but because the memory of a, of a, you know, a traumatic bodily injury is there associated with a, whether it's a sense or a smell, um, Mm. right. I, I don't know. So, when I read books about the neuroscience of it, you know, about senses, they'll sometimes say something like, you know, haven't you ever smelled something or like listen to a song that takes you back to a time? Yeah. 
right? This is the, this is really what we're talking about, right? Like I've heard, heard songs that I listened to like right at the end of high school. And it's like, I'm literally transported to that time when I heard that song, you know, obviously not like I know where I am in space. And so that's, it's okay, but I can enjoy that memory without, you know, the, the, the massive physiological response, but for a traumatic event, whether psychological and or physical, the body can transport you there physiologically, right? And no amount of rational thought is, it's not like you can tell your heart rate, I'd like you to slow down now. Yes, I wish, I wish it were that easy. I know when we're hunting and I love that you use the example of, you know, how this shows up in your patients um, where there's almost like this automatic, like pathway carved into the brain that this hurts, this place hurts in my body. And it takes a concerted effort and some repatterning to be able to, to redirect away from that. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm always trying to find, you know, I think when it comes to pain, pain is, I I think equally as complex as, you know, other traumatic experiences. Um, And we're always trying to find different ways to help people, you know, move through that experience without, trying to re-traumatize them, right? Like, you know, sometimes, um, you know, sometimes using techniques that we would use in an acute phase where somebody's not traumatized doesn't necessarily work with somebody who has persisting pain, that usually there's some mental health um, things involved as well. We find that, you know, regular physiotherapy techniques don't work and oftentimes actually make it worse. Yeah, and the connection between, you know, trauma, like a history of trauma and chronic pain is, is undeniable. Um, I, I work in um, a mental health treatment center right now um, with people with, you know, severe depression and uh, just complex PTSD. And they've got all kinds of like issues with their hips and their backs. And, you know, a lot of times when, when they do the emotional healing, whether it's through EMDR or somatic experiencing or working with like a, you know, a a physical therapist that is, you know, trained to address the emotional aspect of it, it, it gets better. It's amazing that the amount of people that I've worked with that, that have, they don't have back pain anymore because they've healed a lot of the trauma. And I, I don't know enough about the, the link between the two, but it's happened too many times for it to not be. Yeah. Well, there's definitely, we we know that there's, there is uh, definitely a link, you know, that's, that's, that's sort of um, undeniable now that, because even if you have pain, you're still going to have, have a belief about that pain. Yes. That is usually also a belief about yourself um, or a belief about a situation, um, that is related centered to the pain, or there's usually something that, you know, you have to, um, that I oftentimes try to just be cognizant of, or, you know, screen for, um, so that, you know, cause I don't, I don't do MD, you know, EMDR and I don't do necessarily those, uh, you know, types of different techniques. And I feel like, um, you know, counseling and therapy is really important um, when the pain persists, right? Like when the p- pain begins to persist, 
um, beyond, you know, the reasonable tissue healing time, just like you were saying, an, an acute wound should heal like with a, you know, sort of we, we, a relative, you know, plus or minus kind of time frame. But when we see these things persist, we know that, you know, there's more, there's many brain structures and the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system all undergo changes that basically get stuck yeah. in a response loop. Right. Um, so does EMDR like replace talk therapy or is this, or is it something that, you know, is just one of the tools in, you know, one of many tools in your toolbox? Yes. It's, it's an awesome tool that I love to have. Um, but you know, sometimes it's a, it's a, a balance of both, you know, cause I, I have clients that come in and strictly do EMDR and there's not much talking about it. Um, we'll talk in, in terms of, you know, their body sensations and their thoughts and, um, you know, what they've noticed in between sessions and we'll check in about that. And that'll be, that'll be the, the session, um, besides doing the EMDR. And then I've got other clients that, that want to process, they want to, they want to discuss the things that they're noticing in EMDR. They want to, um, you know, self-validate a lot of what their experience has been like, or, you know, something that I do as part of like the initial phase in preparing to go and activate the trauma is it's called a protective figure exercise where, um, you know, the client will identify like this, this figure or an animal or like a spiritual essence to like protect them so that if, you know, if it gets to activating or they feel like they can't handle it, they have this person there with them or this like um, essence or energy with them. And sometimes like just those sessions can be like a lot, a lot of talking and a lot of um, validating and psychoeducating. And so sometimes it is a balance of both. Other times I'm, I'm working with a client on something like a relationships, right? Like going back to that abandonment. If I have a client that's feeling abandoned um, constantly in her relationship, like every time her husband goes on a business trip or her friend doesn't answer a call, like it, it all feels familiar to that original abandonment where, you know, her, her mom left her um, all the time because she, she would have, you know, an alcohol abuse problem and, you know, was not emotionally available for her when she was a child. And so, you know, I'll be working with her in, in terms of talk therapy and we'll be sorting out all of this psychodynamic stuff with attachment, um, you know, and how her childhood have, has affected her now. Um, but if we keep getting stuck around the attachment piece, I'll bring in some EMDR so we can kind of unclog that, that shame belief that she's not lovable because of this, you know, because her mom was emotionally unavailable for her. And that changed the way that she shows up in her relationship with her husband. Um, and so sometimes it's a blend of the two. And then sometimes it's just a tool I use to, to unclog something that's like getting stuck and playing over and over and over in, you know, our talk therapy. Okay. Yeah. That's, thank you for, for, for 
clarifying that. That um, I want to just go back quickly to make sure um, that we've covered it. So you you were mentioning that you sort of have an eight. You were like sort of a, there's an eight phase process, and I'm not sure I've caught kind of all of those pieces. I think you mentioned preparation, so you got the preparation work. Yeah, um, that that you do. Um, do you mind just kind of like you know if yeah. you had to give like a word or a sentence to kind of each phase? Um, what yeah. what would that be? Okay, so we've got the history taking. Yep. Which, you know, that's that's usually our first session. I'm asking for general information about them. We're building rapport. You know, a big part of this is just like feeling comfortable together and, and connecting, having a good relationship. Um, I ask them about, you know, the strengths and assets and like things they have going for them internally and externally outside of the session. So, you know, what are, what are they doing for coping? Do they have a meditation practice? Are they... Um, do they play a sport? Do they have a community? Do they, you know, do they have a higher power? Um, I asked them, what do you, you know, what do you want to get out of this work? And then we set some goals. We set some goals together. Um, and then usually after that, we go into, um, into some history taking. It's like that target farming I was talking about. So, yep. you know, it's not that important that we go through a detailed chronicle history, um, but we go over, you know, themes that are keeping them stuck right now. Um, the negative belief that they have about themselves as it relates to that theme. And then some float back memories just to start, you know, start accessing that um, memory network. And then we, we meet, so that's phase one. Okay. Phase one Phase one and two can last, uh, you know, two to, to four weeks. I mean, sometimes when you have like very intense association, then there, there needs to be a lot more preparation um, because we don't want to go in and activate some, someone that is not going to be able to, to ground and resource themselves after a session. Um, that would be just like... Um, doing harm and re-traumatizing to them. Yeah, yeah. So second phase is listing adaptive coping skills. So what are their coping skills? Um, Then we, you know, work together and decide on what the bilateral is going to be, you know, whether it's the, um, the tones in the ears, if it's the vibrating tappers, if it's the light, if it's, you know, fingers going back and forth. Um, I usually test it out with them at different speeds. And so when we're going through the the trauma, we go really, really fast with the pacing, with the eye movement, with the tapping, all of that goes really quickly. Um, But with the the, uh, meditation and the resourcing, we go really slow. And so I'll try out different speeds with them. We'll try on different techniques um, or different kind of um, bilateral stimulation to see what they prefer and what they feel most comfortable with. And then, uh, I'll teach, I'll teach like two or three different, um, resources. So my kind of go-to ones are calm, safe place where you imagine like this, um, calm, safe place. And you kind of, you 
integrate yourself into that with some tapping or some eye movement, some slow bilateral. There's one called um, the protective figure that I spoke about earlier. And then there's uh, the container exercise, which is good, um, you know, at the end of the session where, you know, if there's anything that's unfinished, we can put it in the container, close it up, open it up next week. Um, but they'll kind of create this, this image um, and visualization of a container that will hold what they need to hold um, until they, they have the capacity or the time or, you know, the space to process what that is. Um, do you have any questions so far? No, no, that's, I mean, it's making, making sense. Um, so yeah. essentially what I've got thus far is like history taking, then you're kind of farming for those kind of, um, you know, target or the, um, you're farming for those themes. Um, yeah. Then you're kind of trying to figure out like the coping skills that they already have. Um, yeah. that you might be able to build upon and it's and you're kind of almost like in a testing phase where you're like checking yeah. to see what what the stimulant's going to be and then the speeds then you're yeah. teaching two to three resources so that you know if things uh, well as a grounding maybe before even starting the MDR but and or as a way that they can use these techniques as a basically coping skill to add to their repertoire of coping skills that they already have yeah. Yeah. And okay. just a couple things to add to phase two. Um, I want to know, I want to know um, about the client support network and who in this person's life knows that they are an EMDR. Um, I'm going to take note of any safety risks. Um, I'm going to make space for them to ask any questions or share any concerns. Um, and then we're going to come up with like, I call it a safe word. Um, it's a, you know, a, a stop signal that if we're, we're going too far um, or they're, they're just like too much in too much pain and they, they want to stop or they want to like end, end the processing, then we'll come up with some sort of signal um, just because trauma, like when you're working with trauma, you want to give choice. You know, you don't want anyone to feel like they have to do something because that can that can be part of their trauma. And so giving them a choice to end if they need to. Yes. Then the third phase. So the third through seventh phase um, is what we call like reprocessing. And so it goes really quickly. The first two phases, you can spend like weeks on them. Um but this next, the next three through seven is uh, moves pretty quickly. So phase three is assessment. So we're identifying the target, like the memory, the worst part of the image, the negative belief about themselves, what they want to believe about themselves. So that positive cognition, how true that positive belief is and um, the emotions that go along with the image and the negative belief, how distressed they feel when they hold all of that together and what they notice in their body. Um, when they bring up the image, the negative belief and the emotions all together. Um, and once, once they're kind of holding all of that, then we start to do the bilateral stimulation. Um, and I'll do that, you know, 24 to 36 times. And I'll, you know, keep checking in. What are you noticing? 
They'll say what they're noticing. I'll say, go with that. And we'll keep doing that. And then, you know, maybe after three or four times, I'll jump in there and say, when you return to that target image where we began, what is your level of distress in this moment with zero being no disturbance or neutral and 10 being the worst you can imagine? And, you know, if it's one, what keeps it from being a zero? Go with that. And we'll keep going and going and going until it's a zero or as close to a zero as possible. That sounds like motivational interviewing components. Yes, it is. Okay. Okay. I just took a course on motivational interviewing. So I'm like, hey, those are tech, those are techniques we learned. Well, the yeah. scale and you know what's what's keeping you out of what you know what yeah. what will help you move forward. Anyways, sorry I had to interrupt because that was just like, hey, I recognize that. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Because if, you know, if they answer what keeps it from being a zero, I'm still, I'm still a little kid and I'm angry at my mom. You know, that gives you more, it brings up more stuff to then be reprocessed out. Yeah. So to ask that, what keeps it from being a zero or, you know, what are you noticing? Cause it encourages them to tune in with them, their bodies, which oftentimes trauma survivors are not in tune with their bodies and, um, just that process alone can be very helpful, but they're identifying these, you know, really unhealed stuck parts. And, you know, something cool about EMDR is that it can actually heal way more than the target you're, you're doing. So if you're, if you're targeting like an abandonment, it's going to potentially heal every trauma, every traumatic memory of abandonment along that same link um, because it, it, it hits on all those different parts. And usually, you know, when you're reprocessing, your mind kind of just remembers all of these times where you felt abandoned, you know, or attacked or taken advantage of or whatever the, the trauma that you're reprocessing. So once they get down to zero, being no distress, we'll, um, I'll ask them, to bring up the worst part of the image. And um, I'll ask them if the original positive belief fits or if there's another one that feels more organic. And then I'll ask them how true that feels. And then I'll say, what keeps it from being, you know, completely true. So we'll do the same thing with the positive belief and we'll keep going until, you know, they feel like that positive belief is true um, with the bilateral stimulation. And that phase is phase five which is installation um, because you're, re- you're really like installing the positive belief with the image that you started with. And then we've got body scan, which is um, scanning the body together with the original target and the positive belief and, you know, continuing the process, continuing to reprocess if there's any residual disturbances, if there's like, a pit in their stomach or, you know, fluttering in their chest, any sort of um, like physical sensations. Um, and then we'll go to closure um, sometimes. Sometimes I'll go to closure if um, I need to end the session. And that's like, we just recap the session um, and then we can like utilize a resource that we built together. So we'll close out with like calm, safe place or, um, you know, something like that, 
to like ground them before they go. I often like to ask them, like, how would you like to close out this session? Um, and, and they know, they know what they need, whether it's like a deep breath together or um, some sort of visualization exercise and we'll close it out that way. Um, if we have time in the session, and if we don't have time in the session, I'll do this work with them um, the following session, which is the scripted future template, which is really cool. So um, what we'll do is we'll figure out a target um, that's like a, a future scenario, possibly with the same person issue, negative belief, body sensation, whatever is relevant. So, um, you know, if you're, if you got abandonment trauma, maybe the kind of future idea of, you know, your husband going to Las Vegas with his guy friends triggers you. And so we'll do basically the same process with, with that image, even though it's in the future. Um, which is kind of cool to me. It's like, it is kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and then we'll also come up with, you know, like, how do you want to feel when you think about that future scenario? Um, and how true does that feel? And we'll, we'll use the bilateral stimulation um, to install the positive belief as it relates to the future. Um, and that's why, you know, EMDR is a complete treatment because it's past, present and future. So um, it really is just like this wraparound modality that, that meets clients wherever they are. That is amazing. Um, I just wanna, I have kind of two very sort of quick questions as we need to close this podcast up to stay on time. But um, so I know you are, you mentioned you're doing it virtual. Um, are yeah. you, so my question is, cause there might be somebody listening who's, you know, in the U S but maybe not in the state of California. Are you allowed, do you provide this type of service to people outside of your state? And then my follow-up is, do you provide, can you do it outside of the U S like if somebody is in Canada, let's say, and wants to try this, you know, can you do that? Or do they need to find somebody in their state and in their country? Yeah. So, um, I can only work with clients in the state of California cause that's where my license is. But if you are wanting to work with someone and do some EMDR, I would recommend getting on psychology today. It's a great, um, database full of therapists. There's also a, um, a website called Andrea EMDRIA and that they, they have a whole database too of, of practitioners of EMDR. So those are really good resources um, in finding someone that practices EMDR where you are locally. Perfect. I just wanted to, you know, I wanted to clarify because I'm sure there are people who are going to be wondering that, including myself. Um, and I, I'm a very aware of psychology today. It is a great database, has lots of information, um, but I was not aware of the second one. And now is that only for the U.S. or do they have um, a, can a Canadian database as well? No, I believe that that is global. Global? Amazing. It's the EMDR Institute, which is like the, the kind of managing body. Um, it's like the, the American Psychiatric Association for EMDR psychologists or therapists, um, practitioners. Um, and what, you know, something else I will say is that 
um, I was skeptical about virtual EMDR uh, when the pandemic hit, but it actually works so well. And I have this, um, you know, for any therapists that are listening, I use this software called Remote EMDR. And it has so many tools on there and you and your client can see the same screen. You can see each other through it. Um, you can do the bilateral um, light bar that goes across the screen. It also has tones that you can hear. I have my clients sometimes tap along to the kind of tempo of the, um, the like- The sounds? Like, yeah, the sounds are the little, they're like glow balls that like move across the screen. Um, it's. It's a great, it's a great tool. Did um, you say it's called remote M E M D R? Yes. Okay. I'll try to see if I can find that and I'll put those links um, in the show notes as well for people. So I'll, I'll put links for psychology today, the EMDR IA and the remote EMDR for practitioners who are looking for resources for um, virtual care. Um, and I guess my last question is, you know, if people are in the state of California and or just like want to follow you and see what you're up to, where can people find you, follow you? Where should they go? Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty active on my Instagram. Um, it's at empower.therapyandcoaching. Um, that's our handle on Instagram. You can email me directly, Sarah at Empower Therapy and Coaching. And then you can also check out our website, empowertherapyandcoaching.com. And for anybody who might be listening to this while driving and or doing other things, I will put all those links um, as well in the show notes to make it easy for you to find the website, email, and the Instagram handle. Um, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to share this with us. Um, now that I have a much I feel like I have a much deeper and greater understanding of like how this works and what, you know, what some, you know, what you might expect from a session. I'm like, I'm almost interested to try it out myself. Never mind. Um, so thank you so much for sharing this with us today. Thanks for having me on, Madeline. It's been so great getting to know you through this. I mean, you're in Canada, I'm in California. Like, what are the odds? It's awesome that we can connect. I, you know, it's amazing what Zoom has done for us all uh, when it's not doing the transformer thing. So I, I apologize for the transformer thing, but you know, this is pandemic life and, you know, we turned off our video, which made it better. So that, that, that always helps. Um, but yeah, this, you know, if it wasn't for this podcast, I wouldn't be connecting with people across the world, learning about all kinds of amazing things. And like on that note, that's probably why people should subscribe because it's not just Canadian, it's worldwide, it's a variety of topics, and like you get to learn some pretty cool things that you probably might not have known about if you're not listening to the podcast. So be sure to subscribe, you know, give us some reviews, give us some likes, um, you know, on wherever podcasts are streaming, because, you know, that always helps uh, get the word out to hopefully get more people to see it and hopefully get people to seek out the help that resonates with them. So on that note, I'm going to say bye for now, and we'll see you on the next episode. Thank you for listening to Living a Better Life podcast. Make sure to subscribe to our show to stay up to date with our latest and greatest episodes. We would also love to hear your comments, suggestions, and reviews. Thanks again. Until the next episode. Bye for now.